Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 27th of November 2020. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, winning Parliament in upheaval over cash ban and bail-in and real Afghan war criminals are those who sent us there. So firstly today, winning Parliament in upheaval over cash ban and bail-in. So we have a few campaign updates today for our campaigns on the cash ban, bail-in and for an Australia Post Bank running in combination at the moment. And the first and big news is that on the 25th of November, the Australian uh, ran with this headline, controversial $10,000 cash ban legislation quietly shelved. And they cited government sources. Uh, saying that it was dropped, the, the bill has been shelved due to, quote, pressure from influential industry groups and a backlash from coalition MPs. And they also cited Barnaby Joyce describing it as obsessive and Orwellian. Now, Lisa, first let me say people should be cautiously optimistic. Never, when it comes to this kind of stuff with the government, always sleep with one eye open, right? That said, um, we are winning on this because everything, once we forced them to this point um, back in February where the committee that did an inquiry into this final report demanded all these changes and then we knew that was caused by a, a government backbench revolt, right? Um, they've been desperate to find a way to downplay this and, and, and almost disown it. Yes, the, the banks want cash banned, right? Yes, this government serves the banks, but we injected the public into this situation, right? People um, activated in massive numbers and it sent a huge message across the board to the, the parliament. And since then, they've been um, almost trying to disown this thing. So, so this news is good. Um, for some reason, the Australian covered it out of the blue yesterday, you know, that, that um, anticipating that what they were saying is there's, a, there's one more sitting in parliament that starts next week. And um, this bill's not going to be snuck through that last sitting of Parliament, no. right, for this, for this year. Um, so I'm likening it to what the government's trying to do so far is like the withdrawal from Gallipoli, right? Well, when, when, when Australians finally wised up that Gallipoli was a farce, the way we got out of there was we, we um, quietly snuck away and, and left, um, you know, things like helmets on bayonets, etc., and, and some moving pulleys to fool the enemy into thinking that we were still there so we can get the hell out of there. That's, that's the way the government is wanting to do this. Quietly withdraw and not actually make... They're not going to admit defeat, but there's no grounds for them to proceed. The banks are still going to try their stunts on, on withdrawing cash, and we've been, comp we've been following all that and covering all that and exposing all that, and we'll continue to fight it. But this one, we've made their life impossible, and this is a victory. We are. This is. This shows that when the Australian people get involved, mm. and I want remember that when we talk next about bail-in, when the Australian people actually say, "Look, we're we're not going to take no for an answer here," right? You can change policy in Australia. Yeah, and and it's a stunning victory actually, because remember this 
cash ban bill to stop transactions over $10,000 was a fait accompli. It was a shoo-in that they were going to get this legislation through at the end of 2019 and everything was geared up. At the end of 2019, September 20, this would have been passed in September 2019 if we hadn't have intervened with a massive round of phone calls um, in August and September, yeah. right? Every, we, 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 every stage of the process, we flooded with submissions and it led to hearings. The hearings exposed that they had no evidence and it led to a report, that, a final report that said, we've got to completely rewrite this. And, and since then, the minister, Michael Silko, has had his tail between his legs, hiding, trying to, trying to pretend he has no relationship mm. with this bill. And it was all scheduled to be rolled out at the start of 2020. So we stopped that. Now, I want to come to bail-in now. And this is another instance where we have shifted the history on this, not just in Australia and actually globally we've shifted that agenda starting from 2013 after Cyprus was the first incidence under financial crisis conditions where the savings of people were confiscated to bail out banks and we started a campaign at the get-go when that happened in 20, early 2013 saying this is coming to Australia and we dug up the evidence for it over time in 2014, we ran a massive campaign because the head of the Bank of England and head of the Bank for International Settlements' Financial Stability Board, Mark Carney, had said we need to get this done, this deal done and signed at the G20 summit, which occurred uh, in November 2014. And of course, that was being hosted here in Australia. And we kicked up such a stink. We had a full page ad in the Australian signed by you know, hundreds of various leaders from all kinds of sides of politics. We, it broke in the Australian media. It came out in the AFR eventually. So such a fuss was kicked up uh, that Mark Carney walked back some of that agenda and none of it passed whatsoever. They actually gave a year reprieve because of the dissent that was afoot. Yeah. And it was only a year later they got it passed in a watered down version. Now, we can do the same again today and have global consequences because this is fundamentally a global policy to deal with a oncoming new global financial crash much, much worse than 2008. And if there's any chinks in the armour of that global system, it ain't going to work. Now, one of the key flanks in this last these last days before the bail-in um, motion comes up on this coming Monday on the 30th by uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts, who is going to put forward legislation which would prevent absolutely deposits from being bailed in, is that we're really hammering the Labor Party on this. And we put out a press release two days ago saying it's now Labor's bail-in. Because uh, if Labor refuses to oppose the government on these matters, then don't say, oh, we're just in opposition. No, no, you own it. Because Labor, in the Senate, Labor can side with the crossbenchers and block anything, right? And most of the time they cave. And, and yes, the government, put, the government is the driving force, but Labor is there to oppose. And if they're not going to oppose, they own it. And that's why we're saying it's Labor's bail-in now. And it was actually Labor that was in power in 2011 when uh, Australia signed up to the Financial Stability Board's program called the Key Attributes of Effective Resolution Regimes. Um, when we signed on to that, we were essentially signing on to the bail-in doctrine. Now, the G20 became the vehicle for fostering that agenda and pushing it forward. And the April um, 2009 G20 forum held in London uh, was attended by Kevin Rudd. And Kevin Rudd 
um, skited about one, being one of the key masterminds of the post-2008 um, you know, uh, rectification of the global financial system in terms of adopting new doctrines such as bail-in and he was praised for his role in forging this new financial architecture. In fact, The Age uh, in September 2009 said that Rudd has devoted himself to ensuring that the G20 is locked in as the main vehicle for developing global economic policies and bail-in was at the forefront of that agenda. So the Labor Party actually played a key role in ramming this through. Yep. Liberal took over, but they're both in it together at this point. Well, that's why Labor's covering for the government on this, right? They've, this is a global, bail-in is a global agenda through the G20. Both major parties have signed on to that, and they're too gutless to, frankly, resist. And Because and, and, otherwise it doesn't make sense. Why would the government, why would the Labor Party give cover to Scott Morrison when we put up through Malcolm Roberts, a perfectly reasonable solution here. Now that said, um, Elisa, cracks are appearing. So this week, we put out, a week ago on the show, we said call uh, the Labor Party, call Anthony Albanese, call Richard Miles, and call uh, Stephen Jones, who are the leaders of the party in this area, and then also call your senators. We've flooded them with calls, and the response is extraordinary, especially in the differentiation. So. Anthony Albanese's office is outraged they're even getting calls. I mean, and I find that outrageous. They should be, it's their job. If you want to get elected, you want to know what the public think. And if they're getting calls, they're telling you what, if they're calling you, they're telling you what they think. So whoever, the dragons that Anthony Albanese is employing, buddy, sack them. Or you're never going to be Prime Minister of Australia. This is the, 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 the abuse that ordinary citizens get from your staff is disgusting. On the other hand, Richard Miles' staff are being sensible. They're taking, they're counting how many calls they're getting and making a note of what side they are on this issue so they can take it back to caucus. That's how you run a political party that wants to get elected. And they reported in two days they got 368 calls in two days. That's extraordinary. When people bother to make a call, go beyond sending an email, actually make a call. That's what we've been able to do this week to the Labor Party. So we've created, we've given them every possible opportunity before they vote and, and debate Malcolm Roberts' bill and vote next week to, 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 to assess the lay of the land and say, the Australian people want us to pass a law that will do nothing but guarantee a deposit in Australia will never be bailed in. We say it won't. This law will guarantee it. That's what they're asking us to do. Why would we not do that? Right? Except because they're running this other agenda. But this is... So... Um, Anything can change between, by the time people are watching this, if it's before Monday, keep making those yep. calls. But anything can change between now and then. And we will, whatever happens, um, we've, we've, we've set the scene so that they can't get away with it. They either pass the bill or they prove to the public what side they're really on. Yep, we're in a time of history where these kind of changes can happen. Now, we'll be right back after this break. We're going to talk about our other campaign for an Australia Post Bank gaining a lot of traction. Welcome back to the Citizens Report where we're talking about Parliament being in upheaval over the cash ban and bail-in and on all these topics you can read more in our Australian Alert Service newsletter, our weekly publication. We'll send you a complimentary copy if we haven't already so contact us to find out more. Lisa, now, also, oh, yes. we forgot to mention before the break, um, our National Chairman, Anne Lawler, our boss, <laughs> she got this excellent article in the Newcastle Herald uh, yesterday, 
we can't bank on law open to interpretation. We've emailed it out widely today. Um, we'll zoom in on that. This is excellent coverage of this issue, and the headline is actually quite brilliant. Mm. That's, the, that's the, um, the level of interest in the public over the bail-in issue. Yes. Now, we've put out a media release this week on uh, Australia Needs and National Post Office Bank Now, which explains uh, a, a legislative addition we've made to our proposal for a national infrastructure bank or national development bank, which explicit would be, explicitly would be a Australia Post-based savings bank. Yep. Now, well, I want to give the details of our proposal, Elisa, but before we do that, I just want to remind people about how this came out, why this is such a subject for us now, because, of course, the Christine Holgate Cartier Watches Affair, right, which we have exposed was a totally baseless ambush of the best, probably the best chief executive in Australia. Um, and we're not, this is not us defending the big end of town here, but if you're going to crush someone, make sure it's over something she did wrong. She did nothing wrong, and, in fact... Everything we've looked at shows the evidence of why that, that suddenly Christine Holgate was attacked over something that she did two years ago um, last month out of the blue was because she had stood up to the banks, right? But the cardio watches cost $4,000 each. And we discovered this week um, what should also be a scandal, a, a real scandal, is that the Australian government is paying to fly a private citizen all around Europe so he can apply for a job as the Secretary-General of the OECD. And that's Matthias Cormann. Matthias Cormann is now a private citizen. Yes, he's an Australian citizen, but he's private, right? And that, the cost of flying him around on an RAAF jet all around Europe so he can apply for this job is the equivalent of one Cartier watch an hour. Mm -hmm. And that's real taxpayers' money. Yeah. Taxpayers' money... Australia Post is owned by taxpayers, but it's not taxpayers' money. The taxpayer doesn't fund Australia Post. Australia Post actually funds the government. It gives them dividends. So and that's not to mention a team of eight DFAT public servants yeah, accompanying him. Yeah, that's just the jet cost, right? <laughs> One car to your watch an hour. So this, is, this puts these scandals in perspective. But anyway, um, so uh, let's get on to the Australia Post now because... The, how, did this, how did Christine Holgate stand up to the banks? She made them pay to cover their costs and she was very interested in the idea of Australia Post becoming a bank. And if that ever happened, the big four banks would absolutely go ballistic and I think they already did preemptively and that's why she's gone. Here's what we propose. We would establish a national postal bank as a separate entity but where it is custom fit with, to operate through Australia Post branches. Um, this is very similar to the way the Commonwealth Bank started in 1911, or it was legislated in 1911, started in 1912. It, it, all its first branches were Australia Post. But what we're talking about is a permanent arrangement. There's 139 postal branches, banks around the world. This is, this is sort of a standard thing. The, the, um, the only reason we wouldn't make Australia Post itself a bank is because 3,000 of Australia Post's branches are separate businesses, licensed post offices, and APRA has said that all, that all require an individual banking licence, and that's rubbish. So instead of making that happen, we would set up a separate institution and it would work um, in hand, hand in hand with Australia Post and they would be interlinked together. Um, so it would provide services on behalf of this National Postal Bank. The deposits that you put in the bank would be guaranteed, right? And the bank would, would take deposits and lend out, but... Um, any surplus funds, that bank would invest in a national 
Development Bank, which we also propose, we have legislation for. And so the Australia, the National Postal Bank and the National Development Bank would work in tandem. One is the retail side, right? And one is the development side. Mm -hmm. And so you would know that your money that you're depositing in the bank that is fully secure for you, because fully secure, not even, not even up to a limit of $250,000, it's a government-owned institution, so it's fully secure, those funds would be helping for the economic development of Australia, right? right. And so we've got, we, we'll be putting those two pieces of legislation up into Parliament through Bob Catter, the member for Kennedy, who is the biggest champion of public banking in the Parliament. But there's lots of widespread support for it from the Greens, One Nation, crossbenchers, etc., including backbenchers of the, of the two major parties. And I tell you what, um, when that legislation is introduced, you will see, well, you won't see it, but I, let me assure you, in bank boards around Australia, there will be psychological meltdowns. Mm -hmm. And that's good. Because those bastards stood by while those banks gouged and pillaged this country for 20 years since we had a public banking option in the Commonwealth Bank privatised, right? And we've got to get the public bank option back. Yep, you'll see a flood of people heading towards that postal savings bank, that's for sure. Now, we've got to take another break, but after this we'll be discussing the emerging Afghan war crimes. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now discussing real Afghan war criminals are those who sent us there. And of course, we're reporting on a, the results of a four-year inquiry run by the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, the New South Wales Supreme Court Justice Paul Brereton, which has emerged this week and, as expected, has exposed numerous war crimes um, and the warrior culture in particular of the SAS and 36 matters have been referred to the AFP for criminal investigation. And, you know, of course, there's horrific stories of non-combatants being killed, of a uh, practice called blooding where new soldiers are egged on to their first kill and a myriad of other things. Uh, but what the inquiry did not find was evidence of a higher level knowledge uh, or indifference to these practices on the part of higher level commanders or at the government or departmental level. Um, but whistleblowers and SAS veterans beg, beg to differ. In fact, 12 current and former SAS operators had come out with an open letter on the 17th of November saying they had flagged exactly these kinds of incidents to their superiors and had been ignored. And the key whistleblower here is David McBride who put out the so-called Afghan files to the ABC in 2017. Um, and he has acknowledged that top brass and the government were uh, tacitly approving these practices. Uh, and of course, even though this is all being vindicated, he still faces 50 years jail yeah. for revealing state secrets for this. No, the, the, what's happening to David McBride, Elisa, is an abomination. We'll put a link to a petition below people can sign, right, because the charges against him should be dropped. But, Australia, but our government's punished people for doing what he did, even though he's been proved to be right. Look, this is Breaker Morant all over again. If you know the story of Breaker Morant, it's not that he didn't do the crime, but he was scapegoated because it went much higher than that and they had to pretend it didn't. And same thing's happening now. In this case, it's the political leadership that sent us there and kept us there because we went along with the Anglo-American agenda on this. Um, it's also the military leadership who, like, including the, the guy who's the current Governor-General, right, is actually responsible for what happened there. But all that has to be covered up. And I'll tell you what, if you're going to, cover, if you're going to scapegoat the most finely trained Special Forces guys in the world, good luck to you. Mm. 
right? Because I, you know, I, I actually shudder to think how those guys are going to be feeling. We want to play David McBride though, this really insightful video. He's talking about what motivates him and how there's a bigger picture here because, because he sees that the reason we're in a country like Afghanistan, and, and he had comments earlier about Iraq, um, is the same reason they're being talked in. He makes a comparison to the plans for war with China, which is really alarming. Have a look at this. And that's what my ultimate goal goal would like to be would be to put that war on trial and to say and to put the so-called strategic relationship on trial and to say look i get the theory we have to do whatever america wants because if china ever invades australia you know america will help us or something that's it's just not realistic and i think a bit like we were discussing before um, the real reason is not because they actually think China's going to evade us and um, America will save us. Uh, not that that's a good reason for us to give away our sovereignty. It's more um, if you do business, if you're a politician that aligns itself with America, you know, you get lots of bribes and kickbacks and trips to America and, you know, you'll be appointed to some good board or whatever. It's really they're doing it for themselves. They're not really doing it. And it, the strategic relationship is for politician to politician. It's not actually to help us. And I think that's what I'd like to attack, to say they dragged us into an unjust war. It was a disgrace. It was a disaster. Um, it was always going to be that way. Um, and we need to, it's not, it's not about the Afghan war for me, it's about the war, with, the possible war with China or any other country that's going to come after that and, and getting the public to say no, enough, we need to stop getting suckered in to things which are for everybody's benefit except the people. But you know, my viewers would, like, I have to say that they would be dying to know more about what you think is going to happen with China. If you have any insider information about it, if you want to say it. Well, it was a bit like the... Um, the war in Iraq, as I said, I mean, and this is one of the good things about being um, an insider on, you know, in the defence force, and um, is that you can talk with quite authority. And people who are not bullshitters, they they have told me that they had plans. They were told um, it was the worst kept secret. They had plans to invade Iraq in, in early 2002. They were told to get on with it. It was going to happen. It wasn't a it wasn't a theory. It was going to happen, um, and they were almost had they were moving equipment there. You know, long before the whole weapons of mass destruction thing. Well, same sort of people, um, senior defence people, has said to me, um, there is a rollout plan for China. And it is, um, and they they talk in sort of like intelligence speak or whatever, but they say it's something like a 50-50 chance we'll be at war with China in some way in a year, um, 100% chance two years, you know. Um, and it's, uh, you know, they're senior people. And it's, even though it's kind of like it's kind of disgusting, I know from what I know that they they do have the ability to make things happen. It's not like oh well, only if China doesn't um you know um only only if China doesn't behave themselves. But we we have the ability. Things like the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, we have the ability to make flashpoints where there weren't flashpoints. Uh, 
um, and we have the uh, we control the, the the mainstream media. All the mainstream media is anti-China. Um, we we have the, the we have the wherewithal to create a, a war with China and make it look like it's China's fault. So, Elisa, the guy who blew the whistle on these war crimes and has been proven right has just said to you that he knows that our side is trying to start a war with China that they'll blame on China because they know they can get away with it. Be warned, that's why we have to expose this overarching agenda. Yeah, now you can read more about that in an article specifically on this subject in the Australian Alert Service. We've run out of time again this week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Lisa. See you again next week. Mm -hmm.